0: The following podcast deals with mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Deals, Debts, and Death, The Disappearance of Candace Singbeal a Saskatoon Police Service produced podcast. We're looking for answers in the unexplained disappearance of Candace Marie Sangbiel from a downtown Saskatoon street nearly nine years ago. I'm Julie. And I'm Kelsey. And we're your hosts. We work for the Saskatoon Police Service as part of the strategic communications team that's responsible for writing media releases, coordinating media interviews, social media content, event planning, website development, and so on but police officer is not in our job description. Rather, we complement their efforts and work alongside them to keep the public informed and assist in their investigations.
1: Before we begin, we want to remind listeners that someone knows something about what happened to Candace. If that's you, please come forward to police, or if you want to remain anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers. In our first
0: episode, we're diving deep into the dangerous and deadly world of drugs that Candace lived in before she vanished.
1: Nearly nine years ago, Candace's boyfriend walked into Saskatoon Police headquarters and reported her missing. Over the next few days, police investigators learned she hadn't accessed her bank account, she wasn't active on social media, she suffered from addictions, and she was nowhere to be seen. In addition to that, she was living on the streets and in an abusive relationship. All of these factors amounted to a growing concern that something terrible had happened.
0: Join us over the course of the next five episodes as we take you inside the world of violence, drugs, and addiction that ultimately led to Candace vanishing.
1: I'm Kelsey and I'll be your host for this episode. Deals, deaths, and death begins now. So settle in and let's get to work. Candace was 32 years old when she vanished in May, 2015 from a downtown Saskatoon Street. For those that aren't local, Saskatoon is a city of close to 300,000 people situated on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis in Saskatchewan, Canada. The city straddles the vibrant South Saskatchewan River Valley and is sometimes called the Paris of the Prairies for the many bridges, eight in fact, that connect the two sides of the city. The downtown core where Candace was last seen is located along the west banks of the river and is home to a variety of retail shops, businesses, restaurants, green spaces, and is a popular area for people to spend time throughout the year. But just like any city, Saskatoon's downtown has its darker side too. As you walk the streets, you don't have to look far to see evidence of social disorder issues that plague almost every other major city people sitting on the sidewalk asking for a few bucks, back alleys providing quiet nooks and crannies for users to consume their drugs, and of which there are plenty of garbage and recycling bins that are the main source of income for some. Businesses' vestibules are a place of refuge to warm up in the winter, and the park benches double as beds in the summer. This is the world that Candace spent her final years living in. Candace, along with her boyfriend at the time, had been couch surfing at a downtown apartment building called the Traveler's Block. She and her boyfriend had been watching a movie one night when he fell asleep and she left to go binning. Binning is the practice of scouring dumpsters and recycling in donation bins for items that have some sort of value. Generally, they can be sold or traded. Candace never returned from her binning excursion, and she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Police have followed up on hundreds of tips over the last eight years and the investigation continues to be active but we still haven't found Candace or who killed her. We'll explain in a later episode what led us to investigate this as a homicide but before we get there we wanted to give you an understanding of how Candace spent her final years. Unfortunately we can't talk to Candace herself but we were able to speak to someone whose own lived experience mirrors Candace's remarkably.
2: So my name is Donna Gilchrist. I'm a resident born and raised of Saskatoon, busy mom of two, and I'm the co-host and moderator of Hard Knocks Talks.
1: Hard Knocks Talks is a podcast that Donna and her husband Dan host where they share their lived experiences and speak with others about substance use disorders and mental illness. Donna and Dan are both in recovery. For her part, Donna is five years into her recovery, and when we meet her for this interview, she doesn't fit the stereotype of someone who was a heavy drug user and spent time living on the streets. She's petite and well-dressed. Her curly, shoulder-length red hair is tied back in a ponytail, and she wears two necklaces. The word mom is fastened to a chain that sits slightly above a separate necklace adorned with the golden outline of a heart. After our discussion, it's easy to see that these necklaces are indicative of her focus and priorities. Not unlike Candace, Donna grew up with loving and supportive parents and was involved in various activities and sports. Life was good. Donna even describes it as privileged.
2: We weren't, you know, um, wealthy family, um, but I was quite sheltered. Um, I played a lot of athletics. Uh, I played the organ. <laughs> so... Um, you know, the um, issues and challenges that we see in, like, the inside or the inner core of the city were quite abstract for me. Um, I was very much outside that. Um, you know, and c- there wasn't a lot of want. Um, you know, if I needed new sports shoes, I got them and that, that kind of a thing. So it was, um, it was, a, I, was I had a very blessed childhood.
1: Donna started to drink out of a desire for acceptance amongst her friends and peers. She speaks about alcohol's ability to bring her out of her shell that resonates with a large number of people. By the age of 16, Donna had a full-fledged drinking problem, but it would take years for her to recognize it for the problem it had become.
2: There's a large component of of social conditioning, Um, and and there was the wanting to fit in. Um, I was always awkward, I was always shy, um, you know, it was, uh, I often felt ostracized, and then when I started to, to drink, um, whatever sort of reservations I had were, and you hear this from many people, that, you know, the inhibitions are gone, and you become more social, and you're more fun, and, and now there's this way to connect with other people, you know, up until that point, I would connect with people on the court, if I was, we got on a sports team. But outside of the game or practice, those people didn't really want to hang out with me until I started drinking, you know, and then it was suddenly I was invited to the parties and and all the social things that, you know, as, as you're growing up, you want to be a part of, and, and, and like some, in some ways we're socially conditioned into believing that that's what the norm is. So I strived for that. Mm -hmm. And then once, once I was on that path, it was full speed ahead.
1: She would later find a job she loved as a paralegal, which led to a brief period of being alcohol-free. But when she took a new job that made her miserable, her drinking habits returned, and with them, a willingness to experiment with other substances. Then she met Dan. He checked all the boxes for her, and she wanted to check all the boxes for him, too. They would have a great time together, but it led to a three-year opioid addiction, and ultimately, Crystal meth.
2: So when he asked me if I'd ever tried meth, I laughed at him. I was like, "No, what are you talking about?" <laughs> and so he was asking me all these questions, and I finally said to him, "Like, why are you asking me this stuff?" You know. And and he said, "Well, you know, I just." And I was like, "Why do you know somebody who uses meth?" And that's when he admitted that he was a user and active user. And uh, then he asked me if I wanted to try it, and I said, "Well." don't know what's like what is it like and he said it's a lot like a cocaine high it just lasts a lot longer and you know I guess I have a rubber arm (laughs) so I I decided to give it a whirl and that was it it sealed the deal it's insanely addictive in the
1: throes of their addictions Dan and Donna welcomed a baby boy but it wasn't long before Dan lost his job and their house went into foreclosure Donna wasn't working either, so they needed to find a way to support themselves and their habits. That support came from gang members and other active meth users spending time at their house, mostly in the garage with Dan, while Donna was inside the house with their son. Donna shared her concerns with Dan about the people coming around. She knew, even then, that those people were dangerous. If they felt like you even looked at them wrong, there could be serious consequences.
2: But, you know, he was so deep in his addiction, he was not hearing any of my concerns. And so the spiral continued. And then one day the ministry came knocking. And at that point, our house looked like a house that you would expect to see where active usage is happening. And uh, so they apprehended our son. What was that like? Devastating. Um, I mean, it's devastating for, for for anybody for that to happen, but um, in one of the legal positions I'd had before, we worked with families trying to get their kids back from the ministry. So in this sort of situation, knowledge was not power, um, because I knew full well the uphill battle that we were facing, and um, I completely imploded. I just became a complete shell of myself. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't stop crying. I, uh, you know, just, I had a complete breakdown.
1: Enter Mike. This isn't his actual name, but for the sake of following this story, that's what we're gonna call him. Donna first introduced us to him as her friend when we spoke. And I'm using air quotes when I say friend here.
2: My marriage had collapsed. Our house was in foreclosure. Our son had just been apprehended. I had no family, no friends. I'd been, because of circumstances, I'd been completely ostracized. So I had nothing. And one fellow that had been coming around, um, I'd known many, many years ago, and he sort of became an ally. Like he he presented like he was there for me and that he understood and that he could help. And, you know, he (laughs) was very cunning. He worked on me like, you know, I can help you. I know how to navigate the system. Why don't you come with me and this sort of a thing. And like I said before, I was very naive to life on the streets and what things are like in the core and what a lot of folks go through and just the lifestyle that they grow up with. And uh, I thought I could trust him.
1: But she found out pretty quickly that Mike's promises were nothing but smoke and mirrors. By that point though, it was too late. Donna found herself living on the streets with Mike and it didn't take her long to understand what her value was. I
2: think what my currency was was me. I was his property, to do with whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. Um, If he was having a bad day, I was his punching bag. If he needed to unleash on somebody, that was—I was there, you know. And that was my, in his mind, my way of earning keep. Otherwise, we'd bin. You know, we do a lot of dumpster diving.
1: While Donna may have been naive to life on the streets, Mike was not, and in a twisted and ironic sense, she actually credits him for keeping her alive.
2: Uh, how do I say he was very respected on the streets. He had a big reputation. He'd been in, in in the game for a long, long time. Um. So yeah, people just didn't mess with him. They knew he was he was serious and like if he made threats he was going to follow through and so he'd gain that reputation um so yeah and everybody just and the ironic thing about it is it offered me some protection you know because nobody would mess with me because they were scared of what he would do you were his property I was his property Yep. Yeah. yeah so yeah it was uh it was a very challenging uh, position to be in because um, nobody was willing to help me either, even though they could see what was happening, you know, was you're on your own.
1: Candace also ran into her fair share of bad people, and even shared with her mom, Pauline, that she had a drug debt. For those that aren't familiar with that world, When a buyer doesn't have the cash to purchase drugs up front, drug dealers will give it out on credit with the buyer promising to pay the agreed-upon amount at a later date. But as you can imagine, given the vicious cycle of addictions, sometimes those debts go unpaid and accumulate beyond an amount the buyer can repay. Dealers thrive on this system because they now have power over those indebted to them, and they generally use this power to teach others a lesson about what happens when you can't pay your debt.
3: One time she said, I've met some really bad people here, some really bad people. And I said, I can imagine. Um, And then there was one part near the end where she had said, I have a drug debt, but don't worry about me. It'll be all right. I'll figure it out. And I a part of me was like I need to help her. But her sisters were like no you can't cuz if you help her she'll just do it again and the people that are responsible don't stop. Never in my mind or my thoughts had I ever ever imagined that her life would be taken.
1: We asked Donna if she had ever incurred a drug debt and while she never did, she knew others that had and had some horrific stories about what happens to those who can't pay up.
2: Other people that I came into in contact with had been kidnapped, they'd been trunked and for anybody who don't know what, doesn't know what trunked is, that means people drive up and grab you and throw you in a trunk and take you out of town and beat you up, or sometimes hot shot. I knew people who got hot shotted over drug debts. And for people who don't know what that is, <laughs> that's when you get injected with um, drugs that have been overwarmed or just hot water, because it wow. it bubbles your your veins, and it obviously can cause death. So, and people have been beaten up. I knew somebody who had got tied to a chair and his teeth removed. So there are certainly
1: repercussions huge and serious ones. Huge
2: repercussions, those. serious repercussions. And I, I think that sometimes people who are um, basically collecting or whatever don't necessarily realize how severe the outcomes can be. Um, and of course, a lot of people are in active use themselves, and so, you know, get high on meth and, and, and go do some work, and things get out of hand, and then, and, and unfortunately, tragic things happen.
1: Drug debts and their repercussions aside, violence or harm could still come to you if you didn't respect the rules of the street
2: for people who find themselves in that lifestyle who haven't been brought up in the lifestyle, there are a lot of things that you're not aware of. There are a lot of things that there's a lot of rules, unspoken things that are you're expected to know. So it's very easy to disrespect by accident. You know, um, there's a lot of fast lessons learned when you're on the street, <laughs> a lot of hard lessons learned. And so you always have to be very cautious and and very mindful of who you're with, maybe what their position is, how much respect you should show. And, and I mean, even sometimes saying that you're friends with somebody can be misconstrued that you're saying you're down. And if you haven't been initiated, that can have significant ramifications. So there's all these different layers that for a person like myself, I had no idea. And that's where I say, like, having somebody like that guy was Probably saved my life, ironically. Mm -hmm. As much as, like, oftentimes he was trying to kill me, there were other situations where having him in my sort of side or whatever. Corner. Corner, if you will, saved my life and saved me from other horrible things that could have happened.
1: Things that investigators believe did happen to Candace, though. Here's Inspector Tyson LaValle speaking to my co-host, Julie. At the time Candace disappeared, he was a sergeant on the investigative team. You'll hear from him again in episode four when we get into details about the investigation.
2: You know, she had conflicts with people. Um, she wasn't liked by by a, a lot of people. Um, being in the drug world? Being in the drug world, right? That she, had, she had dabbled in dealing. She would shortchanged people. She had ripped some people off. Um, she was associated to you know high level drug dealers and so she was in a in a dangerous world she was living in in a dangerous world
0: in which she had burned some bridges
2: in which she had burned some bridges
1: here we are talking to Donna again you and Candace Yours, uh, your story and Candace's are, are very paralleled in terms of you both faced um, homelessness, addictions, pregnancy, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, where your paths differ is in the exit. What did you ever worry about your own safety?
2: Mm-hmm. All the time all the time. I had no idea if I was going to be alive the next day. And not just because of like the drugs that I was using, but um, because of the partner that I was with. Like he, he recognized and monopolized on the situation that I was in. Like it was not uncommon for him to say, you know, you better smarten up because I could kill you and throw you in in a garbage bin and nobody would even know you're not in contact with your family. Nobody knows where you are, and it would be weeks be if they ever found you. you what, what did that start to of do to your mindset? That must have been awful. It was terrifying. Yeah, I, I I lived in constant fear that my son would find out I died on the street, or my parents would get that call. You know, and then and then that created other feelings of guilt. You know, because like. Sometimes what we, we talk about on the show, like, does an addict know the damage that they're doing to their family? And and I think there is an element of knowing, and that actually fuels the addiction as well. They may not be cognizant of it, but I think it's there because I know it certainly was for me. Um, and then there were other situations where, you know, he would whatever was going on, he'd get upset with me, and he'd talk about um, taking me out to B.C. and putting me to work out there, you know. And, and he even introduced me to people in town here who run girls out to BC. So he made it very abundantly clear that this was not just a threat. He could make it happen. So I better, you know, stay in line. You know, and I better not talk shit about him. I better not talk to anybody. Don't trust anybody. Like, it w- I was... Like, even sitting here recounting this, like I'm getting tense and I'm feeling my hands are cold. Clammy. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very real.
1: From a middle-class upbringing to the drugs, violence, addictions, homelessness, and even pregnancy, it's eerie how similar Donna's story is to Candace. The one stark difference, though, Donna is alive to share her story. And Candace isn't. Join us for episode two, where we speak to Candace's mom. We discuss what road Candace traveled that took her from a little girl with big dreams of being her own boss, to addictions, to drug debts, to disappearing. Many people
3: came to me at the beginning and said, oh, are you sure she didn't run away? Are you sure she didn't, you know, run away? And, And there was no way. At first, I thought, well, maybe, but she would never, never not want to know and talk to her kids or be in touch whatsoever.
0: Tell me about the last
3: text that she sent you. Um, So we were in the disagreeing of, you know, social services, you need to go through them to come. And so she said, okay, I will make an arrangement to come on Tuesday and I will be there Come hell or high water.
0: So to you that said, she wouldn't run away?
3: No, absolutely not.
1: That's next time on Deals, Debts and Death. If you or someone you know is struggling with addictions and looking for help, please reach out. Resources are available in the show notes at sastoonpolice.ca slash podcast.